So welcome. If you are here for the first time, we do want to reiterate how grateful we are that you are here and you've given us a Sunday morning uh, that you're able to come and worship with us. We are honored. We know that your time is, um, is valuable and important, and we love the fact that you gave us a few moments. So if you are here, we do want to tell you, uh, thank you for visiting with us. We hope you'll want to come back. Next Sunday will be a great Sunday to return to. It's a fun expression of just kind of who we are as a church. You'll see all of our kids in full force and all their glory, which is really something to behold. We have got a lot of kids under the age of kind of fourth grade, and so uh, it's a ton of fun, and so make sure you do mark your calendars and come back and join us. It really will be a fun Sunday. So we'll be celebrating all of Christmas kind of together in that moment. There won't be really a sermon. It's really more of a journey of scripture and song with our kids spectacular, um, and so we are, we're, we're excited about that. <clears throat> so really with this Sunday, we're kind of wrapping up our little short Advent series, right? You know, for those of you who have been with us for a little while, we started off in Ephesians, right? Isn't that what we're doing? Okay, Ephesians. I know. Seriously. So we started Ephesians. We made, we're going verse by verse. We started this whole new, uh, the Gospel of Grace sermon series. Got all the way into October. Had gone through a bunch of weeks and made it through chapter one. And we hit, ran into stewardship, which is that kind of time of year where we gather together and we talk about what's going to be happening in the next year, who we are as a church. We talk about our resources, both our time and our finances. That rolls us into Advent. And we take an intentional time to just kind of park all that we're doing and say, what does it mean to be part of the incarnation? What does it mean to have this sort of expectation? of the arrival and the return of Christ and the sort of beauty of all the season. And so we've taken a break from Ephesians. We've moved in from stewardship into Advent. And for the past few weeks, we've been looking at this little series that we've called Songs of Hope. We've basically taken some of our favorite Christmas songs and we've pulled a verse or two and we've explored those verses through the lens of Scripture. So we say, what do these things tell us about what Scripture tells us about Jesus? So we're not looking at these songs as though they're the authority. They are taking beautiful things of God God's word and they're putting it to song, which is really what great worship is, right? Worship is not us making up our own theology to sing to God. Worship is singing God's word back to him. And so really what we're doing in these few weeks is we're looking at some great verses embedded in these songs that we sing at Christmas and they're saying, what do they inform us about what scripture tells us about who Christ is? So we're into week three. Uh, we're making it to the last of these weeks, so we're going to explore a great song, um, A Little Town of Bethlehem, right? So one that we've known from the time that we were kids. We're going to look at one verse in that song, and we're going to unpack the idea of what just has come out of this town of Bethlehem and all of its chaos and all of its mess through all of history. What is it that God is bringing, or better yet, who is it that God is bringing out of Bethlehem, and what does that mean for you and I. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. If you're curious about sort of the whole backdrop of Advent, if you're here, kind of that's not been part of your sort of church experience, you can get online, go back a couple of weeks, and I do this whole little background about what Advent is, and comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival, and the expectation, all those kind of things, it's available online. I'm going to skip it this morning so that we can get into the meat of this, because we're also going to celebrate communion together. We've got a lot of great stuff going on this morning. But if you're interested, you can backtrack and do that. But this morning, we're going to be looking at that song, we're going to be a couple of different places, but we're going to launch out of Micah chapter 5. So for those of you that just sort of need to know where we're going, that's where we're going to be. So I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to pray for us, I'm going to give us a little background about that song, and then we're going to dive into scripture and see what exactly God is bringing forth out of this town of contention and chaos to bring hope and joy and peace to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning, Lord, both uh, visitors and uh, regulars alike gathered in one place to worship you, the one true king. Lord, for you have broken into humanity through the cries and piercing, um, piercing the night of this little infant 
They came to us in a town of Bethlehem that was prescribed centuries before Jesus would arrive. Lord, the prophet Micah tells us that something great would come from that city that would give hope to the entire world. And all those years of longing and expectation, Jesus radically fulfills. And some thousands of years later, Lord, we're promised the return of Christ. And so we still sit and wait, both celebrating the greatness of Christ's first arrival, yet sitting with longing and expectation that he will come again. He will make all things right. And so, Lord, we sit right in the middle of both longing and expectation and the joy of arrival. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts about who this Jesus is, what his promise and coming means for us, how we're to find hope in the midst of a hopelessness, courage in the midst of fear, light in the midst of darkness, all while looking forward to the return of our Savior King. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning, and ask the Lord just to teach you something simple like that. Lord, teach my heart. Just prepare me to meet with you or to just instruct me. Like whatever that kind of resonates in your soul, just whisper to the Lord that he would teach your heart. Take a moment, pray for the people around you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want the, the movement of the spiritual lives of the people around you to matter to you. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday is not about you. So just ask the Lord to move in the life of somebody else. Maybe it's your spouse or your child or just somebody you've never seen. Or, or maybe you're here for the first time and you're just going, hey, that guy in the red sweater, Lord, just move in his heart. Like Just be about praying for other people. Pick someone around you and just pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We don't invite you into this place. We know that you're here. There's nowhere that we can go to escape your presence. You are in the very air that we breathe, and so we rejoice, Lord, in your presence. Teach our hearts this morning. Instruct us through your word. Reveal truth to us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Empower us where we need to be empowered. Free us where we need to be freed. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So some of you may know the history of the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, only because it's a little bit more famous. But I'm guessing most of us probably don't. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a synopsis of how it came to be, mainly just because it's fascinating, less so because it has anything to do with sort of the sort of deep theological importance, but more so because the story's powerful because it's just another picture about kind of how God works. So this song was written back in about 1868, really, 1865 through 1868. It was in the coming about stages. This guy by the name of Philip Brooks, who is a very prominent sort of church clergyman back in the mid-19th century, right during the times of the Civil War, wrote it. And he was really well-known. He was actually a young guy. By his 30s, he was one of the most prominent Christian voices in America. He was an Episcopalian clergyman, and he pastored this really famous church in Philadelphia, Holy Trinity Church. And people knew of him, and his voice was pretty prominent, and he was kind of a big deal in this Christian reform circles, if you will. And he was well-known. But in those days, it was really a challenge to both pastor and live, right? Because in, in 1863, right in the height of sort of his ministry, we're in the middle of a civil war, right? 
And Philip Brooks was actually a strong advocate for the North, the abolishment of slavery, and he was pastoring in Philadelphia, and the nation was torn in two. Everybody knew someone who was killed or had been killed or severely injured. The nation was being ravaged by war, and he found it incredibly hard to pastor. Every Sunday, it says in his kind of his writings, it would say that people would come in dressed in black, the women would, because they had lost a loved one, a son, a father, a child, or a second, or even a third child. And they looked to him to give them hope. They'd come to church hoping that he would share the hope with them, but it says that everywhere that he looked, he just saw despair. He saw a a nation that was ravaged, political parties on both sides, well within his church, fighting against each other, brother fighting brother, country fighting itself. Death was everywhere, and he was very discouraged. He goes on to talk about the despair that he felt, that he found it incredibly difficult to even give hope to the people because he himself didn't have it. He looked at all the death and all the struggle and all the hurt around him, and it was everything he could do to stand up on Sunday morning and try and point people to Christ. They wanted the war to end, and so did he. And so shortly thereafter, it actually did. Right around the 1864, 1865, the war comes to an end. But tragedy strikes the country in 1865 when Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. The nation, once again, is sort of riddled with this great, deep despair. And Philip Brooks was tapped as one of the men that would eulogize the president at his funeral. This 30-year-old guy, still six years into his ministry, like barely doing pastoral ministry, has been tapped by the country to eulogize the president who led us out of the Civil War and was unifying the country. His actual sermon of that funeral is online. It's fascinating. You can go and read it. He's an incredible orator. But he gives this message, but it's really the final straw. He can't take it anymore. He's like, I'm done. I don't know how to give hope to this place, to this country, to this nation. My, my soul is in despair. I am downcast. And so he basically tells his family he has to go on break. He needs a break, a sabbatical. He needs to get away. And so right after Lincoln's funeral, after he does all that, he hops on a boat and he sails to the Middle East because you can't fly there. So he took a sabbatical to the Holy Land, right, which was a much different deal back in the 19th century than it would be today, right? There's no plane flight. I mean, you're riding a, a boat in the 1800s, 1865 to be exact, over to Israel where he took sabbatical to try and get reinvigorated with his faith. He was just at a place where he needed to see the joy of Christ again. Christmas Eve, he finds himself in 1865 packed in the throngs of people that filled Jerusalem to come and celebrate the Christmas time, right? I mean, it is a tourist place anyway, but in the 1800s, especially on Christmas Day, people would come from everywhere to celebrate in the holy city all that was unfolding around Christ's birth, both Protestant and Catholics alike, and it was packed. And it says there, he kind of in his writing says that he was so pressed in with people that he was just couldn't take it. It just seemed like too much. And so against the well wishes of people, he got a horse and he just started riding out into the country. For the better part of Christmas Day, he just rode. And it says that about twilight, right as dusk was happening, he was coming over the top of this hill and the stars were starting to come out and he saw the lights on the horizon of the city of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem sits six miles south of Jerusalem. Right? It's really close in today's world, but six miles back then was a pretty good hike. Far enough to be away from the city, but close enough to be part of all that was somewhat happening. But it was out in the middle of nowhere, 
and the stars were bright. And he was overwhelmed in that moment with this idea that holy, majestic, mighty, wondrous God showed up in this tiny little shepherd town to be born in a manger, actually in, a, in the back of a cave where they parked the animals. The majestic God that made these stars became human right here in this place for humanity. And it said that, he says that his heart was sort of captured and this thing began to sing in his soul that he couldn't explain. That why would God do that? How could that actually be that majestic, mighty God would come here in this place to this lowly environment? And this song began to ring in his soul, this experience he had. He returns home and he tries to tell his family, but they don't get it. He tries to explain it to his congregation. Multiple times he says that he, he tried to tell them about the experience that he had out there. But it just didn't come across well in words because you can't express this sort of overflowing of the heart. But by Christmas of 1868, some two years later, this thing was still just racing around in his soul. And so finally he decided, he said, you know what? I can't tell adults about it. I'm going to tell the kids. And so he began to write these little poems out of his experience in the Holy Land and out of that night in front of the city of Bethlehem of what God has shown him about what Jesus came to do. And he wrote this poem, which essentially was a children's poem. And he took it to this really famous organist that was a part of his church, this guy by the name of Lewis Redner. And he said, Lewis, I want to put this poem to song by Christmas Day, which was in about a week, so that we can sing it to the kids and they can sing it with us. And it said for the, that time, he, this Lewis guy, who was this great musician, wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and couldn't come up with music. Frustrated, he falls asleep. In the middle of the night, he's awoken to this tune, this thing that's running through his head. He gets up, he goes to the piano, and lo and behold, it fits perfectly with the lyrics of the poem, the children's poem, A Little Town of Bethlehem, that Brooks had written and handed him. They sung it for the very first time to the children as part of a learning experience and a kind of a teaching moment for the kids on the Christmas day of 1868, this children's poem. Born out of an experience of despair, God brought forth this incredible song of hope. And for all of us, right, that song has been a part of our Christmas experience for 150 years, right? I mean... I don't know what that means, except it's just pretty awesome, right? That that's how God does his working. In the middle of our despair, he brings about this hope, which is really what's being encapsulated in the person of Jesus Christ anyway. So what is it about Bethlehem, right? Like Bethlehem is an interesting place. Even to this day, Bethlehem is not what you might picture from this song as this sort of quaint little town. It's a place that's actually riddled with war and bloodshed, and fighting. It has been for literally thousands upon thousands of years. Even to this day, it's, it's part of the Palestinian-controlled West Bank. It is just fought with barbed wire and 12-foot walls and violence. But yet, there's something about this place that's remarkable, and Micah's going to tell us about it. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip over to Micah 5, 8. We're going to throw the first of these lyrics up here because this is what kind of where we're going to, going to start. We, let's, there's actually one before this, if you can find it, Angie. It talks about, um, there's one a little bit back that we, I decided we were going to do at the last second. 
You may have to jump ahead to the song that we're going to do. <clears throat> but it talks about, oh, there it is. So little, a little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, right? Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. So you get this image, right, that Bethlehem is this outlying little town. Quiet, really nothing remarkable. We're actually going to hear that from Micah. Nothing special, nothing remarkable about this city, but something great is going to come from its streets, right? So here's what we know about Bethlehem. Micah tells us this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are a small among the clans. You are small among the clans of Judah, and out of you will come one who will be ruler over all of Israel, whose origins are from old, from the ancient of times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. And the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock. And in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God. And he will live securely. For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And there will be peace. So what Mike is referring to is that. Israel as a whole, actually the southern kingdom of Israel, is facing this incredible siege by the Babylonians. They are about to be completely overthrown and annihilated and destroyed, and the Babylonians are at the doorstep of Bethlehem. In fact, they've laid siege to the city. And Micah has basically said, because you have turned away from the Lord, you are going to be destroyed and turned into exile. You are going to face destruction. There's going to be terror and heartbreak, and it's going to be shattering. Your streets essentially be filled with blood, for they are dark, and there is no light. But he says, however, I want you to know that God is a God that keeps his promises. He has promised to never leave you, nor forsake you, nor abandon you, and out of your streets will come one who will bring hope. And he explains that one as the one who comes from the ancient of times, or the ancient of days, right? Which, of course, we know to be the Lord. That this Jesus will come from these dark streets and he will bring hope and he will be great and he will be Israel's ruler and he will live securely and his greatness will reach the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. So Micah says, right, out of this kind of worn, torn city, this, this hopeless despair, God is going to bring something great. So imagine Philip Brooks sitting outside this city, right, Micah ringing through his ears, knowing that the, the Son of Man, right, that Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, was going to be coming from the streets of this little town with hope and with promise in moments of great despair, despair that Philip had experienced, not wanting to deal with the war and the struggle and the strife and the hurt and the abandonment or the hopelessness that he was facing back home. Much like the folks that Micah was prophesying to, the Israelites in the south there in the kingdom of Judah saying, look, there should be lots of reason for despair and hurt and struggle and strife, but God is going to do something great. And he said, and that greatness is going to come out of these streets. And this song captured those. So we'll go back to that verse we started today, Angie. <clears throat> and he gives us a few things that are going to come from the streets of Bethlehem that are incredibly important. So he says this in that, in that second verse. He says, Yet in thy dark street shineth, 
the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So what we're going to see in these little verses are three incredible things that Micah also echoes are coming from the streets of Bethlehem. Out of worn, torn devastation, out of the fact that this city is going to be annihilated and burned by the enemy, God will bring about something incredible. And that something incredible is actually going to be a person. And so Brooke starts in, he says, in those streets that are dark, that are full of despair, that are full of hopelessness, there is an everlasting light that is coming. Now, of course, we know light to be incredibly associated with the person of Jesus Christ, right? That is the picture that John paints throughout his entire gospel, starting in chapter 1, right? Jesus is the light. The light pierces the darkness. This is the image of the incarnation, that God in all of his holiness has broken into humanity, steeped in death and sin. God in holiness and light shatters humanity in the inbreaking of the incarnation. Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, which is my favorite picture of this, actually says it. He says this, he says, I am the light of the world, right? Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus echoes this truth in which he says, I am that everlasting light, that part that comes from this place of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Out of those streets of darkness and despair comes something incredibly beautiful and hope-filled and significant, and it is a light of life. And Jesus says, it is essentially me. I am the light of the world. Right? If you walk in me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And we know a few things about the idea of light from John's gospel and even from what Jesus says. There is only one light, and that light is forever. So what that means is that there is no other light. If this world is steeped in darkness and Jesus is the light of life, there is no third option. It's light or darkness. Jesus is the light, the world is darkness. Where is darkness? It's all around us, it's in our hearts, it fills us until Christ comes and shines light into that darkness. There is light and there is darkness and that is only Jesus. And that light is actually everlasting. That if we know the light of life, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have everlasting life. So Jesus says, if you know me, if you allow me to penetrate your life, to literally lead you, you will never walk in darkness and you will have light of life, meaning everlasting life. You will have something that will last forever. So what Mike is essentially telling, right, and what our what Brooks is recapturing is that out of this darkness, God is going to bring something incredible. And that light is going to change the way that we see the world. It's going to change the way that we see ourselves. It's going to change the way that we see the things around us because that's what light does. It illuminates in a very different way. If you've ever walked in darkness with your hands out, feeling for things, looking for a light switch in the middle of the night, how much more clarity comes if that light comes on? You can all of a sudden see things differently. They were certainly there before, but you couldn't see them with the beauty that they were intended to be seen in, right? Jesus changes the way that we see all things. He changes the way that we see our resources. He changes the way that we see each day, the breath that we bring, the opportunities in front of us. He even changes the way that we see pain and sorrow and struggle. Because in the light of Christ, right, there is this incredible thing of hope. There's this incredible opportunity to realize that this darkness has no power. 
if you've ever stood completely in the dark, right? This happened to me last night. We have this shed out behind our house, and uh, we have a ping pong table, and Cooper and all of his buddies come over and play ping pong, and they plugged a bunch of heaters in and blew all the fuses, right? Christmas lights, sheds out, everything's dark, and they just leave. They just hop in their cars and go somewhere else. And so I'm left to kind of figure out what's next. Everything's out. So I go out there with a flashlight, and, and, or without a flashlight first, and, and whoever designed this, there's actually a light switch on the wall, but it's like 15 feet away. And so I'm navigating this place, right, in the dark, and I finally just give up. I can't find it. I cannot see a single thing. I'm feeling the walls. Everything is just a mess. And so finally I go in there and I get a flashlight and I go in there and I flip all the switches and I can't, can't get to work. I got to go to the breaker box, turn it on. Everything ends up fine. But the picture of being in absolute darkness is, is borderline terrifying. And I was in this room that I know really well and I was still like, I don't like the way this feels, right? Like, not just the fact that maybe somebody's in there that's going to grab me. I could karate him. But more so like, I don't know what's in front of my feet, if I'm going to trip, if I'm going to run into something, right? If, if I'm going to stick my finger somewhere, that it, it's just a shed, right? Like, who knows what's in these? So I don't like it. Not created to live in it. It's fearful and trapping and uncomfortable. But yet, when I was able to flip those switches and go back in there and begin to put all the things back where they should and unplug the heaters and whatnot, there was this incredible comfort of being like, I'm standing in the middle of this light, and I know where everything is, and I can see it. I'm not afraid of that corner. I'm not afraid of that plug. I'm not afraid of these things. I'm not afraid where I'm going to step because I have this illumination that changes everything. Essentially, in a kind of a really bad metaphor, that's what Jesus does. Right? When we walk in this world without Christ, we're essentially fumbling around. Fear and death and sorrow, and they, they reign and they're real. And they begin to capture our hearts. And we begin to try and navigate this world in a way that we were never created to live. And we create our own paths and our own ways and we find comfortable zones, but nothing is rich or alive. Nothing is deep or real. It has no real meaning apart from Christ. But Jesus says, I'm the light of the world and the only light. And when I pierce the darkness, all of a sudden, the darkness can't stand it. And the light wins. And he says, and when you follow me, you will never walk in darkness again. And that darkness, right, has no power, and the light leads to life. There's a sort of beautiful picture of this idea that in Jesus, there is both illumination and full life. Like, we just see things differently. Hope, joy. So he says, look, thy dark streets, right, of Bethlehem that are full of, of war and bloodshed and pain and hurt, and, and even in just this, this quietness of not having any illumination at all, there's something that's going to come out, and that light is going to come, and it's everlasting, and Jesus says, it's me. And he goes on to say this, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in who? In the everlasting light, in Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. All of our hopes are met in Jesus Tonight, like when Jesus breaks into humanity, right? When the incarnation happens, when Jesus is born, the fulfillment of all of humanity's hopes are met. And at the exact time, same time, right, the quenching of all their fears happens. So this incredible dichotomy that in Jesus, as he's born, all of our hopes are fulfilled and all of our fears are put to rest. So this idea of hope is really powerful too. So my favorite comes out of Romans chapter 8, which is this, this picture of our helplessness and God's incredible hope. And this is what, what he says uh, as Paul talks about, in Ro I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5. He says, you see it just the right time, right? Chapter 5, verse eight, 6 and 8. Just the right time. 
When we were still totally powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So at the very right time, while we were totally wrapped up, helpless, unable to do a single thing, we're steeped in despair and fully lost. Christ died for us. He literally gave his life in our most vulnerable and helpless moment. See, the birth of Jesus marks the fulfillment of our hope. Think about those folks that Mike is talking to. He's telling them life is about to get really awful. Part of it's your own doing, but it's about to get really bad. In fact, right outside these gates lay the Babylonians and they are going to annihilate you and your children and they're going to carry you off into exile and a lot of you are going to die. Sorry. It's what's happening. Your city will be turned upside down, so you better gather your troops. And he said, but in the midst of that, you're essentially going to lose. However, out of your streets, out of this place, there is something that is going to come that is going to not only redeem you, but all of humanity for everlasting, because it is coming from the ancient one, the ancient of times. God will bring about hope. So as Bethlehem sacked, fulfilling the prophecy, lots of Jewish people are carried into exile, and for hundreds of years, they are waiting. They are hoping that these prophecies about Christ are correct. They're reading back to Isaiah's words, back to Micah's words, knowing that God has promised to bring about something great, that he will raise them from the ashes, that God will restore them to everlasting strength, that he will not forget them. And for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, they waited. 600 years they waited. So when, when he talks about the hopes being fulfilled, think about the longing and waiting that was coming and what was met in the cries of the Messiah. So as the shepherds get this announcement, as the Magi visit Jesus, there's this overwhelming movement of the time that this Christ child is the one that all of Scripture had been talking about that all of our hopes are going to be met in the cries of this Jesus. And hope is a really powerful thing, right? We've talked about hope in here. The idea of biblical hope is not wishing upon something that you just sort of hope will happen. Hope in the Bible actually talks about certainty. Our hopes are met because we believe Jesus, this Messiah, would always come and God fulfills his promises. So hope is always marked not by this sort of optimism, but by a certainty that God is who he says he is. And so he says, tonight all our hopes and fears of all those years are met in thee. And Paul echoes that by saying, here's what true hope is, that God has promised to come and redeem. And you are helpless. In fact, you can do nothing. There's nothing you can do for yourself to remedy yourself out of darkness. You can't work your way out of it. You can't think your way out of it. You can't theologize your way out of it. You can't do good deeds. You can't perform. You can't do enough things to get yourself out of the darkness. While you are at your most ungodly, God said, I love you. And he demonstrates that love by breaking into humanity the incarnation and dying on the cross that if we put our hope in him, right, he fulfills. 
So there's this great part of Christian history that unfolds. Um, we have a lot of catechisms and confessions in our Christian history, but there's this great part of our Christian history that unfolds in this, this great catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a Heidelberg Confession. This idea that we needed some things to be able to group together as believers and say we believe these truths because there was a lot of things that were unfolding in the world, especially in the 17th and 18th and 16th and even 15th centuries, in which people weren't getting along much the way they were today. And there's a big dispute between the German Lutherans and the Reformed Christians, right? And so they decided that they needed to figure out a way to, to get the believers to agree on the same things. And so they wrote out of the, the University of Heidelberg this catechism. This teaching tool. The word catechism just essentially is a teaching tool. It's a series of questions and answers. You could teach children and teach adults to say, what do we believe about Jesus? Will we believe that Jesus is this and this and this? The very first question, I wrote it down so I could remember, remember it well, but the very first question of that Heidelberg Catechism, right, that was born out of like somewhere in the vicinity about 1563, right, when these German Lutherans and the Reformed Christians were fighting and they needed a sort of a gathering place. This guy by the name of Eldrick, Elder Frederick III gathered. He's a big ruler in Germany. He gathered his preacher and this great professor out of the Heidelberg University. Puts them together and he says, come up with a way to unify the people that stand solidly on scripture. Right? And so they write this, this. But the very first question it asks is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Right? So this is, this is our proclamation of what do we have as our only hope, our only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer. This is what people would recite together. That I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. He is my hope. Now think about that. What is our only hope, right, in life and death? It is Jesus, that all my hopes are met in him because God is who he said he is. He broke in, fulfills his promises of scripture, breaks into that night through the cries of Jesus, fulfills those promises through the death and resurrection, and we sit here today celebrating at Christmas time that God is a fulfilling nature of all of his prophecies. So he says, all my hopes are met in thee tonight, but there's also that other little piece, fears, right? So all the hopes and fears of all the years are met. How can hopes and fears be met at the same time? Well, because something different is happening in each. He is fulfilling our hopes, but he's also putting to rest all of our fears. So there was a very real fear, right, in the days of Micah, that we were going to be annihilated for nothing, or, or maybe that, that, that God wouldn't keep his promises, and there would be no hope that comes, or the one that was promised, the Savior, may never return, or may never come, or may never give us hope, or God would forget us, and we'd all just be annihilated and die. Fears are very real things. Scripture's full of them. People have them. But fear is not from the Lord, but it's very real. I mean, we have it. I'm guessing that most of us here today are afraid of something. And I'm not talking about silly things like lizards. I'm talking about like real fears like I'm watching my son drive away for the first time and I realize how little control I have over life. 
or I don't know if we're going to be able to make it to the new year because our dollars are not touching end to end like they need to. Or I may be downsized and my job may go away or my marriage is literally holding together by an imaginary thread and I'm petrified. Or I've run into a diagnosis of a family member or even myself that I don't know what to do with. I don't know what the future holds. Fear is incredibly honest and it is real. And it lives in us. But scripture tells us that it actually has no place in us as believers. It's not from the Lord. It's very much from the place of darkness. It's from those streets before the light pierces it. Fear dwells in the shed where there is no light. It dwells in the corners of the unknown, in the places that we can't see or feel. The problem with us as believers is that we acknowledge the light in our life, yet we live like we're still standing in a dark shed. But what happened in the incarnation is that both God fulfilled his promises, right, and all of our hopes, And he put to rest all of our fears. In other words, I do love you. I have come for you. And you have eternal life. And those quenching, right, that putting to rest of those fears changes everything. One of my great pictures of how God works in the middle of our fears comes in Matthew 28. You remember, it's actually an Easter story. The women, you know, Jesus has has been crucified and dead. They prepared his body. They put it in the tomb. Right? Sunday morning rolls around, and Mary and the other Mary go down to the tomb, and Matthew 28 records this whole thing, and they go to just basically tend to the body of Jesus. But when they get there, the stone's been rolled away, and the angel Lord is sitting on top of it, and they're afraid. And the angel Lord actually says to them, don't be afraid, for Jesus, whom you are looking for, is not here. He recognized their fear, maybe because they saw an angel and his light was blinding white, or maybe they just overwhelmed at the situation, but he said, don't be afraid. Jesus has risen. He's gone ahead of you. And so it says that they turned and they hurried, both filled with joy and fear, they ran down the road. So they have this coupling of of joy, but they also coupling of real fear, which is, what does this mean? If Jesus isn't here, what happened? If he did raise from the dead, that's overwhelmingly exciting, but what is Pilate going to do? Is he coming for us next? Like, what does life look like if Jesus is actually gone or been raised or just not here? Like, what do we do? Our whole life has been wrapped around knowing and following this Jesus, and now his body is gone. So the fear they're experiencing is incredibly real. Like, what do we do without this? But there's also this twinge of joy, right? Well, it says they're running down the road, and they're greeted by Jesus. And Jesus says, greetings. I mean, of all the things he gets, greetings. And it says they fall to the ground. And they grab his feet and they begin to worship him. And you know what he tells them? Do not be afraid. He actually says to them as they're they're crying and worshiping and crawling at his feet, he stands them up and says, don't be afraid. They weren't afraid of Jesus, right? They They realized that in his voice, there was something so powerful that it drove them to worship. They fell on the ground and clasped this idea of holding on dearly and tightly to his feet. They weren't afraid of him. But life was so uncertain now. And so Jesus, knowing fully well what they've experienced and what they're about to walk into, says, don't be afraid. See, Jesus' very presence, his very resurrected life is, right, the quenching of all of our fears. There's nothing to fear. If Christ has overcome death, what is there to fear? What can man, as the psalmist say, do to you? 
If God is who he said he is, if he breaks into this humanity with everlasting light, if he fulfills all of the hopes of humanity, and he promises to never leave and to bring light, and he puts to rest all of our fears, what are we afraid of? Why do we cling so tightly to those fears? Why are we afraid to release them, to let go of them? Why do we let them run our soul if they're actually met in Christ? I've been asking myself that question most of the end of the week, which is why do I still let fear in my life if Jesus truly came and put them to rest? Yeah, there's pieces of life that are hard, that are unknown, but that's the brilliance of knowing the light. I don't have to walk in darkness and live in fear of the unknown because the light of life literally shows the way, illuminates the path, changes everything. And that light is so faithful and so true, right? That some 2,000 years ago, it pierces the cries of the night, fills the streets of a worn, torn Bethlehem, promises everything and everyone that believes and trusts in him that we'll be all right and be saved, and that all of our fears can be put to rest. Maybe this Christmas season, right, this time, we need to put to bed all of our fears and fall in the absolute comfort and rest of the fulfillment of all the hope that we have in Christ. For he is the light. He will never leave nor forsake. We will always be able to walk in the light of life, for he is Jesus, the everlasting hope. He is what comes from Bethlehem. The very promise of his life is actually poured out through this table, right? This is this promise made tangible. This is one of the great reasons Jesus gives us this table at communion is because it's the tangible demonstration of exactly the coming of this hope. Jesus knows that as he leaves and returns to the Father that humanity is going to be left with questions. He knows that the believers are going to turn on themselves and turn on each other, and they're going to need a unifying place to remind themselves of exactly what Christ did, both through his arrival and through his death and the promise of his return. And so on the very night that he was betrayed, the night that everyone would abandon him and run and take off and leave, he gathers those disciples, and after giving thanks and having shared the Passover meal together, he does this thing with them giving them this tangible peace in which they will be able to gather together and be reminded and unified with each other and with Christ for millennia. And most literally, we gather here this third Sunday of Advent morning doing the exact same thing that Jesus did with his disciples, and that is the fulfillment of hope and the putting to rest of fears. That's what this table does. It is the fulfillment of of the promises of God and the putting to rest of every fear we would ever have because this is Christ. So on that very night, everyone took off. They share the meal. He takes a loaf of bread. Afterwards, they're reclining at the table, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the blood My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread, this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. That he is the anchor of our hope. He has a promise to return, and he puts to rest every one of our fears. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul also tells us, 
that before we take and share in this, we should examine our hearts. We should look inward and say, how am I right before the Lord? Are there things I need to confess? This is not something we do or take lightly. And so as part of our communion this morning, we invite you as you sit and as dawn, our worship team leads you in worship to examine your heart, to confess the places that you need to confess, to ask for freedom where you need to ask for freedom, to proclaim your hope in Christ and the extinguishing of your fears, your trust in the everlasting light. And as you're ready, we'll invite you to come forward and take communion either down here at the front or in the back. We'll have two stations. We do it by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat, and return to your seat. Down front, we will have gluten-free Jesus, and you can get some of that as well. So um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to step into worship. We're going to invite you to remain standing after you take communion as we close our time with that song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, hopefully making those words incredibly real and incredibly true based on what we know this morning. Let's pray together as our elders come forward. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather in this place this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the universe, that you hold all things together. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who redeems all of humanity. You are the one that both sets us free, gives us life and light, gives us hope in the darkness. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is the fulfiller of promises. You are a God who quenches fears. You are a God who changes all things. So let those things ring true in our hearts this morning as we take this meal together, celebrating both the promise of your arrival, the truth of your death and resurrection, and the incredible joy of knowing that you will come again. Lord, as we celebrate this meal, fill our hearts with truth and with grace. And we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. As you feel led, we invite you to come forward this morning, take communion, and then remain standing, and we'll close our time in worship. Mysterious tree on that beautiful scandal. 
inside you will be delivered at the foot of the cross justified in your spirit restored by the river that pours from our blessed Savior's side at the wonderful tragic mysterious tree on that beautiful scandalous night you and me were betoned by his blood and forever washed white on that opportunity to share in this meal together, for the truth that it both proclaims and for the hope that it restores, for the quenching of our fears and for the promises, Lord, that you make. Lord, this meal is the reflection of the fulfillment of all of your promises to us, Lord. You are both our Savior and our Redeemer. So, Lord, we gratefully and wholeheartedly rejoice that we get to share in this meal together and that it is a promise of not just what you've done, but of things to come. 
We celebrate this meal, as Paul says, until you come again. These promises are ours, and we know that they are true, and you are a God who will fulfill them. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, I pray that you would echo those truths that we talked about this morning, that in the middle of fear and difficulty and sorrow and despair, there arises this Savior of the world, that is the fulfillment of all of our hopes, that is the everlasting light and darkness, that quenches and puts to rest all of our fears, that those things no longer have mastery over us in Christ, that coming out of the streets of Bethlehem is the light of the world, the hope for all mankind, the quencher of fears, Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. As we close our time in worship, let's let those words echo true in Jesus' name. Sunday and join us. We'll be doing a lot of these songs again, as well as having our kids be a part of our celebration. It'll be a great experience of journey, a journey of scripture and songs. We celebrate Christmas and the incarnation together. Uh, Jenny has asked that if you have elementary kids or parents that are in our, our kids that are in our program, stick around for a moment. We've got a small rehearsal. It's going to be very brief. The way those kids need to practice their giant speaking parts uh, for next Sunday. So, but take these truths that we both applied, or we've applied all three weeks, these 
theological rich truths about these songs that we sing, apply them to your heart and your life, and may they change you. May we realize that we serve a God who is the everlasting light, who is the fulfillment of our hope, and the one that puts to rest all of our fears. Go in peace.